Uh, this is Ian Harvey, Tokyo U.S. Brand Manager. I'm here with Ben Saxton. Ben has six podiums at the U.S. National Championships, including a win in 2019 in the U.S. National Skate Sprint. He's got eight World Cup starts and one World Championship start. He skis for the Stratton Mountain School T2 team, and he's 27 years old. Thanks for being here today with me, Ben. Oh, yeah, absolutely, man. I'm pumped to be here. Super. Well, my first question is pretty basic. It's where did you grow up and how did you start ski racing? Uh, I grew up in Lakeville, Minnesota, which is a small little suburb just south of the Twin Cities. Um, and I started skiing pretty late in the game compared to most people. I was actually a hockey player for a long time, which is, uh, I think, required of most uh, Minnesotans for, for at least a time. But I joined Nordic skiing because I was really into cross-country running and track. And Nordic skiing was kind of the designated winter activity for those guys so that they could stay in shape between cross in the fall and track in the spring. And uh, when I joined, I found that I really loved the sport and I loved the people. And it slowly took over my life until I moved to Vermont and uh, you know that was six years ago. Okay yeah. I, on a side note I think hockey is probably the sport that I'm most talented at and it's kind of weird that I never played a lot competitively but I played a ton of pond hockey growing up. Um, grew up in New England you know yeah big sport especially in parts of Massachusetts. Oddly oh, enough, that's where that's the the core. Yeah, that's, that's where I come from. Tons oh, no, of it's uh, absolutely uh, one of my favorite sports. And it's, it's one of my favorite sports to, to watch. I'm really enjoying the Stanley Cup finals right now. I, I've played basketball and football and all these things. But uh, when I watch a basketball game, I don't really understand what's going on in the same way I do when I'm playing a hockey game. And there's an added level of enjoyment to that, which uh, – Makes it really fun. Yeah. Well, I love hockey, too. Are you yeah. a Bruins fan? Oh, no, sir. Minnesota Wild. Wow. Yeah, that's right. They moved. Well, Bruins. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you ski for the SMS T2 team, obviously a super elite team. Your teammates include some of the best Nordic ski racers in the world, athletes such as Jesse Diggins, Simi Hamilton, Sophie Caldwell, Julia Kern, all of whom stood on a World Cup podium last year. To name a few, obviously, also Ben Saxton. How is it to train with and be part of this team? Well, I think being on T2 is a really immense privilege. I'm really thankful to be here, and I'm really lucky to be here because I think it's a, it's a really unique environment in U.S. skiing. Um, I think this team does a better job than – than anybody at finding this uh, really healthy balance between aspirations for international success and also uh, staying true to our responsibilities uh, to the community that uh, supports us and sustains us and, you know, with uh, more uh, local aspirations and the way we work with juniors. And obviously that's been really hard this summer. It's uh, hard enough to put together uh, safe and, you know, uh, following VT guidelines, all of, all of the training sessions we want to do as a group. Um, and it's difficult. We haven't had a lot of crossover with the, the juniors um, this summer as we normally do, because of course there's a lot going on in the world right now. But uh, I think Stratton is really special um, because it really endeavors to find find that balance and really remain tied to the community. That's a, there's a strong sense of family uh, in the SMS T2 group and with the SMS school and surrounding New England area. Um, but as you said, this team is uh, very successful on an international stage. So that uh, devotion to the community isn't coming uh, at the expense of any sort of results. Um, they actually inform one another because it's pretty healthy and pretty balanced. And I think uh, a great deal of credit needs to go to uh, Sperry Caldwell, who's our program director, 
And that's always been his vision for the team. And it's something that he's done really well to foster, uh, foster in us and in uh, our coach. And it's something that I, I really love and really feel is special about this team. There's something that I've been, I've noticed for many years looking at Norwegian programs, German, especially German biathlon programs, Swedish programs. You've got club systems where you've got youths looking at junior, like world junior type stars. And you got juniors, even the most successful juniors looking at World Cup and Olympic stars. And they've all got enough contact with one another to inspire one another for the for the World Cup stars to to be observed by the juniors and youth and know that they can do it too because they're coming up in the same pipeline and they live just down the street from them. They see what they eat, they see how they train. And they, it's, there's a belief and a know-how and a confidence in the system that is affiliated with those, and with those countries and, and some of those clubs. And it seems that Stratton, and at this point after having started the elite team and developed it to the point where it's so successful, I think that's one reason why so many successful juniors are coming out of Stratton. It's gonna continually feed that pipeline. Would you agree with that? That's a unique thing, I think. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think oftentimes uh, that, that uh, proximity that you're talking about in uh, Germany and Norway, Sweden, lots of these European countries, um, that proximity between all levels of talent within the sport, whether you're, you know, it's your first summer training or your World Cup skier, you can still be part of the Mora Ski Club or you can still be part of Hemming Ski Club. And there's this uh, touchstone that everybody can, can find in each other. And uh, the United States, uh, it's difficult often to find that just because of the geographical realities that we live in. Um, the place that has the most high school skiers might not always be the place that is um, most conducive to an elite team training environment. And so oftentimes the geographical realities of the states make that uh, a harder thing to find, but Stratton is really special and unique, like you said, in the way that it does uh, mix juniors um, and international skiers and allows them to, like I said, sort of find that touchstone in each other and kind of inform one another's success. Exactly. And to build on that, I think if you look at the history of the U.S. ski team and you look at Southern Vermont specifically, that's been more or less the core and the heart and soul of the U.S. ski team for many years. Yeah, I, I do think that there is uh, something special out here. Um, and I, I really think it's uh, a collective attitude uh, that comes from the community. Um, it's something that uh, John Caldwell started all those years ago in Putney, and he built a group of people that picked each other up and carried her and became the most successful generation of male skiers in U.S. history to date with Bill Koch's silver medal in Innsbruck and the, the team finishing fourth in the relay that year. All those guys came from, you know, right over the hill um, over in Putney and and I think that that community has persisted, that sense of uh, an outdoor collective, that uh, devotion to hard work, and uh, just loving what you do is, a, is an attitude that is contagious. And it's something that's persisted here um, for obviously as long as I've been here, but since uh, Bill and John and Tim and all these people were doing it back in the 70s, and I'm sure they would say it came from uh, people before them, but this is a special place. It's an interesting thing to consider a country such as Slovenia, that they've had quite a bit of success here and there in cross-country skiing. So I like to use them as an example. They're very small and they don't have the, some of the problems that we have as a country because we're so geographically diverse. Even out West between all the different ski centers, it's like six hours of driving. Oh, yeah. And, and I think that breeds a sense of competition between clubs and rivalry even, which, which can create political problems where I almost wonder sometimes 
if Vermont or even Southern Vermont was the United States and, and that was the pool that we were picking our national ski team from, we'd be very unified, kind of like one of these very small countries. You wouldn't have all these rivalries and so on. I almost wonder sometimes how successful we'd be because it would, of course, we'd have less people to draw from and less talent, but we would, I think, be far more unified and there'd be less politics and less, I don't know, it, it seems like a problem sometimes for us as a country, our identity. You better be careful, Ian. If anybody from Anchorage is listening to this podcast, we might have some, some emails pouring out. <laughs> yeah, I probably shouldn't have. Uh, I wasn't planning on talking about that. No, okay. but I, I, do, I do know what you mean. There is, uh, like we've talked about earlier, the, the geographical realities of the United States make it really difficult sometimes to find a cohesive uh, national body when you're crossing four time zones and the Rocky Mountains, the Great Plains. All of these things are, are uh, they're beautiful and special, and they endow each locale with a really uh, unique gift in, in training. Sun Valley has things that Stratton will never have. So does Anchorage. Um, but there is something special about uh, a very tightly knit group of skiers. And I, I think that's what you're getting at is there is uh, a larger sense of unity that grows out of physical closeness uh, as much as anything else. Exactly. Um, so is there something that is surprising to you about the Stratton T2 team, how it works better or worse or simply different than the usual? Just something that's surprising about the program. Um, I think that one thing that I was surprised by when I first got here that honestly I'm, I'm still surprised by and still very thankful for is uh, the degree to which uh, the team moves in, in one direction as far as training is concerned. You know, you listed all my teammates, Simi and Sophie and Diggs and Julia and, you know, Catherine Ogden, all these people that are so immensely talented. And all those people, they've been on World Cup podiums, they've had these results. And it would be easy to imagine a scenario in which they kind of retreat into their own training plan, because that's what works. I mean, clearly, it's, it's working for them. But uh, the team does a really good job uh, balancing the needs of all the athletes and still maintaining a, a pretty cohesive, pretty unified training plan for the group as a whole and uh, allowing people to train together is one of our biggest, one of our biggest strengths is that we've always worked hard to make sure Jesse Diggins and any teammate, Sophie Caldwell and any teammate, any junior, all these people can come to these training sessions because we're willing to work together. And uh, I'm really thankful for that unified direction. Cool. Yeah. That is special, absolutely. You're coached by Pat O'Brien. He's very technical. He went from being an athlete to a coach very abruptly. And it seems to me that in no time flat, he was a super high level coach and and very successful he's all in as a coach tell me what it's like to be coached by pat o'brien well uh pat for my money is hands down the best coach uh that we've got in the united states and i i don't think that's bias and i don't think it's hyperbole i think that his attention to detail and um i'm sure you've seen his pretty much masochistic work ethic and his just deeply entrenched love of Nordic skiing are so evident uh, in the way he conducts his business. Um, and they're qualities that you have to live up to uh, when you're his athlete. Um, and they make me, they make all of us better skiers every day, um, having that example and that, that leader. Um, out with you every day. Um, but I think for me, the biggest thing is athletes live a competitive life, which means necessarily means that there are gonna be ups and downs. You will win or you will lose. And there are highs and lows and it's all too common to feel that you're getting 
left behind or you're confused and Pat uh, has this innate sense of loyalty that he extends to his athletes and his belief in us is noticeably unfailing and unwavering. Doesn't mean that he lets you off easy. He certainly does not. But, you know, for all the ups and downs I've had in my career, there's never been once that I didn't feel Patrick O'Brien believed in me and I didn't feel that he had had uh, plans for my future. He had plans to help me accomplish my goals. And a competitive life is really unstable. And that sense of loyalty and that sense of home that someone like Pat can provide is all too rare. And it's a really special gift. And it's his greatest strength. Uh, it's the quality that uh, I respect in him the most, undoubtedly. Super. Yeah. So Ben, you're pretty much a sprint specialist. Would you sign up for yeah, that? Yeah, I think I have had it. <laughs> I think that's fair. However, in your last year as a junior, I remember you were quite successful as an all-rounder. Yeah. That was a while ago now. And I also remember your first year, I think it was your first year as a senior, you were second in the Super Tour 15K Classic. Yeah, something. Yeah, I'm not sure which year it was, but you're right. Yeah, it was early on. I think it was your first year as a senior, but... But bottom line is, what I think looking at sprinters normally, um, they'll start out as sprinters, and as they age, they become more and more all-arounders. Some examples like Torney Hatland started as a sprinter, and then he ended up winning some distance races at the end of his career. Or one of one of the only men to ever win skate distance uh, classic. He's won all six types of races on the World Cup. He's one yeah. of like two guys that have ever done that. Yeah, amazing. But my point is, it, it seems that, that sprint specialists start out more or less as sprint specialists are young, they haven't got a ton of distance in their legs and so on. And as they progress through the years, sometimes they get a little worse at sprinting as they age a bit and get, let's say, more efficient and become better at distance racing. And you seem to be going the other direction a little bit. So you started out as kind of an all-arounder with, you know, an emphasis on sprint, but you had some quite successful races in all-around. And it seems to me you've been specializing more and more and becoming more and more successful in sprint. Is that accurate or what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I mean, the results <laughs> certainly bear you out. Um, I think that the discrepancy between my distance results from sort of the end of my junior career and, and sort of this, the first part of my senior career, middle part is, uh, I can kind of chalk it up to like two things, looking back at training and stuff. I think I focused really intensely on sprint training. I felt like I had this result as EU 23 and this was this avenue that I wanted to pursue. Um, and I went pretty hard for that, uh, which I put on a fair amount of muscle, which was good for sprinting. Um, and I didn't have, you know, enormous hours. And I think a lot of my, uh, I'll, I'll just, for me, they've been largely unsatisfactory and disappointing distance results have come from uh, my not doing all of those things right in an attempt to focus very intensely on sprinting. And it's something I've made a pretty hard uh, correction towards over the last like 18 months is really uh, jacking up my volume. I've uh, down about 25 pounds from where my normal race weight is. And that's been like a healthy change and balanced. And it's like, it's paid big dividends and I'm starting to see results and there's, you know, never count your chickens before they're hatch. And uh, there's a lot of work uh, left to be done, but I've started to make these changes to get back towards uh, that more all around athlete that uh, I think I'm capable of being. 
Super. That sounds really yeah. good. The result you're referring to, I believe, was was it sixth place in the U23s about five years ago? Yeah, it's, I think so. U23 World Championship, sixth place, which is Kazakhstan. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So that that's that was a fantastic result. Absolutely. Yeah. So do you still identify as a sprint specialist with, you know, as sprinting has gotten harder and harder, I think the courses have gotten more difficult over the years. I think, you know, a sprint specialist needs to become more of an all-arounder to get through the rounds and some of the real steeps and, you know. Oh, absolutely. Can't be like a linebacker anymore, really, necessarily, you know, because the gravity yeah. aspect. No, I, I completely agree with that. I think that, one of the things that makes skiing such an engaging and interesting sport is the way it, it constantly evolves. And I think if you need any proof of that, you just need to go and watch World Cup footage from five years ago and you'll look at people and be like, how did anyone ever ski this bad? This is so ugly. This is like, I don't know what's going on. And in five years, we're gonna look back at all the footage of us doing World Cups. We're gonna be like, oof, that is a tough look. Um, and I think that the way that the sport continues to evolve makes it really interesting. And that's exactly what you're talking about when it comes to sprint racing is sprint racing came around, like it was turn of the century. The first championships to have it were Lottie in 2001, I think Torony Hetland won the gold medal. Uh, first Olympics to have it were, uh, Salt Lake. And I think that back then sprinting was very much, you know, who can do 200 meters the fastest at some point. And then it started to evolve into more of a bulldozer drive. Can you put together 90 good seconds? Um, over the years, we've seen the pendulum swing back and forth between do you need to be wiry or do you need to be a <laughs> total meathead? Um, but the, the sport has never stayed static and sprinting over the last three years uh, has definitely continued to evolve. And so I think you're totally right about sprinters needing to carry a lot more all around fitness than they used to. Um, Before I continue with this thought, um, I want to ask you a question that is a bit of a surprise for you, but Let's eliminate Americans because I think you'd probably say semi or something like that. But is there a sprinter that you emulate or that you consider to be kind of your sprint hero, like Hattestad or Fredrickson or Hetland or even uh, one of the younger guys like that's around now? Is there someone that's legendary for you that, or one of the Russians like Patukov or someone like that? So we're eliminating Americans? Yeah, I wanted to put that <laughs> okay. in just so you insist. That's so you... fair. Um... <laughs> You know, there have, I have a great deal of respect for, I mean, just a lot of love for so many of these guys that I watch when I'd get up early to watch illicit Eurosport streams on my, my, the desktop computer in our kitchen and, you know, up at 5 a.m. trying to watch these World Cup races and explore this you know, whole universe that I didn't know existed until I was 16 years old. I love all of them for giving me that sense of adventure and like, who are these people? Where do they come from? What are their lives like? I think so many people opened me up to that in like the 2012 onwards sort of thing. Um, but I think, you know, Petr Nortug was probably my favorite skier. I think he's a very complicated person. Um, and, but there's nobody that made me uh, held attention and, and made me gasp like that. Um, when it comes to just sprinters in particular, I love the way Bronzdahl has always conducted himself. He just oh. retired this spring, but he, uh, you know, he's a guy that, he was always uh, seemed to be in the right place at the right time. How did he get in that position going around that corner and the, you know, the last bend of the A final. 
he put himself there. He was uh, someone who didn't work flashily, but he always was there. And he was a closer um, in the lanes, one of the most uh, terrifying finishers I imagine anybody from that era had to face. And I loved the way he raced and I loved the way he uh, just kind of stayed icy all throughout the day. He was a cool dude. You, to me, you're describing Pellegrino in a skate race, but uh, I'm with you. <laughs> Bronstall is also a cool cucumber. He doesn't, um, he doesn't stand out in the rounds, doesn't waste yeah. a lot of energy being flashy, which is pretty cool. That's neat to be able to talk with you as a fan of the sport, not only in a student of the sport, not just someone who also races World Cups and World Championships and has yeah. a U.S. National Championship. It's neat to, to see that you're clearly um, just you've got a huge passion for, for the sport, too, which is awesome. To Love see. it. Okay, so the question I was building up to ask was, after I got you to admit you're more or less a sprinter, was <laughs> to say sprint specialists and all-around skiers, they used to train very differently. They, you know, the Norwegians had a sprint, and they oftentimes still do, you know, a sprint team and an all-around team and so on. And people are going back and forth, like Claybo's gone back and forth and seems to do better in distance when he's trained with the sprint team, oddly enough. And um, but today it seems like the teams train more and more similarly again. The sprint teams do more volume and also the distance skiers do much more explosive strength and such. Yeah. So my question is with your focus on sprinting, do you train differently than your all arounder teammates at Stratton? Um, there are certainly some differences, but like I said earlier, I think one of our strengths as a team is that we do trends or tend towards a, a, a universal plan. Um, I think that that balance between sprinters and distance skiers, like you're talking about, there's certainly a lot more volume on the sprint side these days. Sprinters have gone to have more volume and distance skiers have grown to have, have more explosive um, aspects to their training. But I think the big thing is learning your own body and, and how to trust yourself. So I would say the biggest difference between me and more distance oriented teammates, and we can take uh, my roommate, Ian Torchia, is a fantastic, one of the best distance skiers in the US. Uh, he's a big distance guy. I'm on the other end of the spectrum. And when you look at our training, what it often comes down to is, is the, the volume itself. When we get to a big volume week, I'll be somewhere between 24 and 26 hours. Physiologically, I, I tend to respond to training pretty quickly. Like, doesn't take a lot of intensity, doesn't take a ton of time. But once I get past a certain volume, my body will stop responding and just start breaking down. But Ian's body operates on a different time scale. He reaches these greater heights, but he takes longer to get going. And when he does a big volume week, he'll creep around 30 hours or more, sort of. And so that's just like, it's not better or worse. It's just these different bodies, different machines that you have to respect and, and know what works best for you and, and how to maximize the, uh, the work that you're putting out every day. If, if Ian trained very much like you, there's no way he'd ever look like you. He's, he's a distance skier through and through in terms of his build, his efficiency, and so on. Agreed? I wouldn't, I wouldn't underestimate the man. You let okay. him loose in a gym, I'm sure he'll put on 40 pounds of muscle right quick. I'm not saying he's not strong. I'm just saying, but let me, put, let me ask this question. If you were to train like him, would you look more like him? I'd look a lot skinnier. I'm just um, curious. You know, how much yeah. of this is natural? And how much of this is training effect? I think that I think that were I to train at like a volume equivalent to Ian's, I'd definitely have a lot less body mass. I'd probably get closer to like 160 pounds. I'd tend to go between. In the past, it was like a around 200 and now I'm like 175 to 180 sort of 170 to 80 bouncing around my weight tends to fluctuate uh pretty pretty rapidly but it's it's something that uh I've always had and it's not uh 
you know. But if I were to train as much as Ian, I think that I would just necessarily, I would have to lose some of this body mass. It's just not efficient to carry <laughs> all of my chunky legs and stuff uphill. I can't, I can't do it as much as Ian. Can't do it as efficiently. And if I was training, you know, the hours that he did, I think my body would, you know, I would intuit, this is, this is not sustainable. We're going to have to find a more economical package to be dragging around for 30 plus hours. I wasn't trying to make a point. I was yeah. trying to establish this out of curiosity, how much of your build versus Ian's build might be training effect and how much might be natural, you know, and so you pretty much addressed that, but I wasn't trying to make a point just for that. No, no, no. I was just, sorry, I misinterpreted the question. It was a good question. Cool. Yeah. So um, as a sprinter, you're obviously super strong. I mean, that's clear to see if, if when I watch you sprint, it, you're obviously super dynamic and very strong. What do you do for strength training? And do you do, do, you do anything different from, from the norm in terms of your strength training? Uh, you know, I've actually been trying to cut back on strength training a little bit this summer. Um, which is part of that effort I was talking about to try and maybe lose a little bit of mass and with the added volume kind of even out, find a more economical, um, not any less explosive, but more uh, economical frame to bring into races. Um, and I've focused a lot more on body weight stuff and sticking to uh, yeah, body weight stuff. I'm trying to do less heavy squatting, heavy pull-ups and dips. Just stick with regular pull-ups, push-ups, do a lot of core, you know, focus on these things that will um, not necessarily add a lot of mass, but continue to keep you to keep you strong. Ski training, as you know, is plenty effective uh, strength work in its own right. Yeah. Anytime you go out for a double pull only workout, it's a pretty aggressive upper body and core session. And so it's something that I've found with my body, I can uh, back off of strength a little bit. I can get that stimulus, that necessary stimulus um, from uh, training more than I thought. And I can afford to back off a little bit in the weight room. With that in mind, it seems like what the U.S. ski team calls velocity strength would be right up your alley. You're getting away from max strength, low reps, high resistance, and doing like doing a few of that, and then going removing the weight, and then seeing how fast, how dynamic you can do those movements. That's oh, working on? Uh, definitely something I've I've been involved in. Um, you know, I was on the on the team for a time, and. Uh, I learned a lot about that and about the philosophy behind that from Tashana Miller, who's the head uh, strength and conditioning coach for the U.S. ski team. She is an absolute genius, and she is so fantastic at finding ways to uh, continue to surprise athletes in their training. Because uh, the, you know, the basic philosophy of training is I'm going to put a stress on your body. You're going to super compensate and come back stronger. But if you keep hitting the body with the same stress, right. that response starts to be less and less. You start to grow less and less. And Tashana does a fantastic job having strength plans for people year round that continue to surprise them in different ways and make sure that the body is continuously responding. Surprise meaning confused. Like surprise or confuse the muscles so that you get a, you get a, an adaptation, a, a response. Yes, like doing absolutely. It's a, it's a new stress. Yeah, exactly. Just want to make sure that the listeners understood what that meant. <laughs> so you've started in world championships. You've started in multiple world cups. You've got us national title and multiple podiums. I'm curious if you have a favorite race that you've ever done a day that brought great, great emotion or memories. It might doesn't have to be one of these elite races, like the best race of your life. It might have been a junior race, youth race. But I'm curious what, it, what, it, what race you might bring to us and 
what story you might tell? Um, I think I think there are a lot of races that I that I think of often, but one I do tend to return to more than others is the uh, the classic sprint at the 2015 World Championships in Falun, Sweden. And it was my first international experience on, on a professional level. And it was so cool because I, I lived in a hotel and trained with and saw on the trails all these people that previously had only existed on television for me. And we trained on these trails. They're packed eight people deep. They're covered in colored banners and there were horns and bells and you know like rattles that it was just a cacophony just overwhelming all the senses and to see the the intensity and and like you know the power and the joy that skiing can reach the this level that it can get to is something that still motivates me to this day, to have had that experience and to know, like, oh my goodness, you have no idea how high this thing can get, is uh, something I'm really thankful for, always will be thankful for. Um, but it's also something that motivates me on a daily basis, is knowing that that is out there and that's something that I ought to be chasing. That's really cool that, that you've got the perspective of that still fresh in your mind and it motivates you and spurs you on. I remember my first junior nationals and what a huge deal that was to me. I remember oh, my, first senior yeah. nationals, my first world juniors. I went to two world juniors in cross country, my first world cups, my first world championships, my first Olympic. And, and each one was this, just like what you're seeing. It's almost, and you and I, I mean, we've always been cross country skiers. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's very much like, it's very personal even though you've never been there before necessarily, it's your first time there. It's very personal because it's, it's like a fantasy come true where absolutely valued so much and so appreciated. And it's the highest level of appreciation as well as uh, expression, you know? Yeah. Skiing in the United States, you kind of feel like you're part of a secret club and you have this knowledge that nobody else gets, but it's kind of this thing that we have. And you go over to Europe, you go to Norway, you go to Sweden, you go to Germany, Italy, and you open the box and you're, everything comes to life. You get to play with this world that you've envisioned in your head. It's so, it's, it's really an incredible experience. It's something I hope that all racers get to experience on some level. It was cool what you were talking about, um, the steps, my first junior nationals, my first senior nationals, and all of the races that came to mind when you asked this question, they were the firsts. I can tell you the first podium I had at JN's was at Theodore Worth Park. That was the, that's the other race I like to, you know, talk about when people ask me this question. My first senior nationals in Rumford, Maine, um, first world juniors in Liberets, Czech Republic, and all of these things Skiing is a sport of steps. And every time you take this step, you can peek over the next one and you go, oh my God, I got to get there. Yeah. There's another aspect to what you said that is very thought provoking to me too, though. You're, you're describing the scene in Falun and the, the whole cacophony of noises and the excitement and the, you know, most of those fans ski themselves and just the, the pure excitement if you leave that scene and just go skiing on the so-called tourist trails that connect towns from town to town. And in some cases you can stop and grab a cup of hot chocolate or coffee or something in the way. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's a whole lifestyle that, and this is the tip of that almost like an iceberg or tip of the spear. Um, it's a manifestation of the culture that we don't necessarily have in the United States, except for pockets here and there. But in some yeah. of these countries, it's, it's everywhere, and it's so beautiful to celebrate. Like, like parts of Austria, certainly. When my wife's from in Germany, there's this place called the Schmucke that's not no, well-known at all. It's nothing. And there are hundreds of kilometers of ski trails there, and the road actually gets parked in. 
So you can't drive through the area on a weekend because the road, people just say, oh, heck with it. And they triple park and, and they go skiing. And the road's just closed because people parked the road closed. And there's thousands of ski, and it's not a ski area. It's just yeah, that, a place with a lot of trails, you know? It's fantastic. I mean, that's not that unusual for a lot of places in Scandinavia and the Alps. It's just... No, it's I just, think you're right. It's, it reflects this kind of commitment to, yeah. to outdoor culture, to healthy living. I remember my first World Juniors, we went to a pre-camp in Ramsau underneath the Dachstein Glacier. Um, and I was utterly dumbfounded that to go to skiing, we just walked out of the hotel and there were trails in the back and they just went through the farm fields. And when you got to a road, you took your skis off, you ran across the road and it kept going and it went through everybody's land and it went all around, it connected back over to the stadium. I'm sure you've raced in Ramsau at some point. And I just remember being dumbfounded that this network of trails could exist that wasn't specially curated and, you know, paid for by some park authority like it often is in the United States. That was something that just totally blew my mind the first time I got over to Europe. And not only do they have the one of the best trail systems in the world for elite racing, but those same trails you're talking about, do you remember a town called Filzwoos with a beautiful, we I call it Ravager's Mountain, but it's called Bishop's Mütze. There's a mountain west of there that's it's got these two double peak on it like rabbit ears it's way to the west the trails go from Ramsau all the way through all these little towns and villages way up and then they also go in the other direction to Schladming or Arnold yeah. Schwarzenegger so I mean it's and people don't when they think of Austria they certainly don't think of cross-country skiing they think of alpine skiing but they've got a network of cross-country ski trails and regions to ski and it's just amazing oh absolutely yeah so rewarding to Expose yourself to that. Yeah, I mean, Southern Vermont's awesome. Uh, parts of the Rockies have some really nice places, parts of the PNSA and in, in Alaska. But this is basically an entire country. And it, this particular country we're talking about isn't even a, a Nordic country. <laughs> it's amazing what they actually have over there. And when you sink your, when you embed yourself in it, how rewarding it is. Yeah, no, it is a magical place. Not to mention a certain Thomas Vosberg lives in most, most of the year in Ramsau and, uh, and is, a, is a familiar, you, you, you hang out there and you see them this guy tearing through town with a VW bus, <laughs> you know, with a big beard, you know, the gray beard he's got now and the yeah. gray hair and, you know, and it's like, wow. <laughs> That's legendary. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, well, super. When you hang out in the woods of Southern Vermont, I hear once in a blue moon, you might, uh, spot Bill Coke tearing through the woods. I've only seen it once or twice myself, but I think it's much the same. Awe-inspiring. I would love to see that. <laughs> and not only love to see that, but I'd love to see him doing all those tricks and just hauling ass through the woods. Like in those videos that we saw from the 70s, I'm sure you've seen those videos. I'd love to oh, see yeah. those now. Yeah. I had to talk about inspiring. Okay, well, thank you for your answers on that. They're, they, they really resonate with me. <clears throat> ben, as you know, I'm the Toco glove designer and I have been for very many years. One question I like to ask is, what is your favorite Toco glove and why? Easiest question you asked, Ian. It's the Profi. Yeah. Yeah. Hands down. I, I love it. Uh, it's really breathable, which is awesome. There's nothing worse. I hate getting sweaty hands at ski races, especially when in cold environments, sweat is how you do, you just is a killer, especially in like sprint rounds, you're constantly moving, stopping, moving, stopping. The Profi is super breathable, but they still keep you protected. I mean, I, I think the Profi is the finest product Toko produces of any kind. Nothing against the hats or the wax, but it's the Profi for me. Um, I know it is a little lighter, so if circulation issues or anything like that, you know, maybe you want to look at something a little heavier weight, but for my money, most winter temps we see, the Profi uh, goes up, it goes down, and I can wear it in just about anything. It's my favorite. I knew you were going to say this because every year you order a whole bunch of Profis from me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and every year I'm always like, man, what if it's minus 10 degrees at? I, I'm always like, what the heck? I want to throw you a pair of thermal blusters or something, but 
Um, but this is why we make mini glove models because different people have different circulations and oh, for sure yeah. on, on the younger racing crowd, profis are very popular. And then as people age, generally they go to warmer gloves and warmer gloves and warmer gloves. Um, but so I, I appreciate uh, a very lightweight racing glove connoisseurs yourself being so appreciative of the profi because I like to think that we've got pretty much the best gloves out there in every category of gloves. And you're the yeah. first person who's called out the profi. Well, I do think there's something to be said. You talk about the older you get, maybe you tend towards the, the heavier gloves. I will not always pretend like the Profi is the warmest glove. Of course it's not. The Arctic Thermo Plus, that thing is like wearing a space heater on your hand. It's great. But when you're racing, and this is one of the other things I love about the Profi is it allows you to be really dexterous. You don't want to feel like you're wearing oven mitts or anything like that. Not that many gloves do make you feel like that, but the Profis, you just feel like you're in your hands. It doesn't feel like anything's in the way. I don't notice that they're too warm. I don't notice that they're too cold. They just let me do my job, which is the best thing any athlete can ask for out of a piece of gear. The, the Profis are pretty unique in that they have a wind blocker uninsulated wind blocker layer in the back of the hand and there's an uninsulated uh, palm but between the fingers there's a mesh there's no protection yeah. whatsoever it's an elastic mesh and that elastic mesh exposes you to the cold which for people without uh, circulation issues I think exposure to the cold in a racing environment can kind of wake you up and stimulate you and feel really good <laughs> you know absolutely yeah well it's kind of cool yeah. Okay. Um, I've established that you're 27. Yeah. I usually ask this question to older athletes, but I think that it could be quite interesting to hear a 27-year-old's answer. What is something you know now that you wish you knew when you were 18? Um, I think I wish that I would have been slightly less cautious and a little – not, not as uh, afraid of fatigue or failure in my training. I don't think that I made grand mistakes that necessarily ruined anything, but I don't think you can be afraid of getting tired and I don't think you can be afraid of, of going for it in your training. That's not to say like go copy Claybo just for the sake of copying Claybo, you need to be smart in the way you train and you need to apply yourself judiciously. You need to apply yourself appropriately, but don't be afraid to go for it. You know, this, there is a, an element of this sport that does involve a little bit of faith um, and uh, hard work. Yeah. So let me, let me ask more specifically, are you talking about you wish you had done perhaps a little bit more hours or more intensity or more commitment? Uh, what, what is I probably would have, looking back, I wish I would have maintained uh, a higher hourly load, which is on nobody other than myself, um, that I didn't necessarily do that. Um, but looking back, that's something I think maybe I would have aimed for. Hmm. Okay. Well, I'm sure that that'll be really interesting for everyone, much less younger skiers to kind of chew on and think about. So thank you for that. Yeah, but I do, I do want to be clear. That's part of my own specific journey. And I'm thankful for the things I learned. But as a blanket statement, do more hours is wrong. You need to listen to your body and you need to, you know, not be afraid to take the next step, whether it's more hours or more intensity, more commitment, whatever it is you need to make sure that you're not leaving anything on the table as an athlete. Yeah. And to be clear, I didn't say what you think everyone else should do. I yeah, said, yeah. What did you think about, you know, your yeah. recent history? So no, no worries. <laughs> ben, I, I'm curious about what your strengths and your weaknesses are as an athlete. I, I think they are pretty much one and the same. It is uh, fast twitch muscle fibers. I think that's what makes me explosive. That's what makes me uh, 
dig deep in sprint races, I can always find power and I can always find speed. Uh, but the consequence of using a lot of fast twitch muscle fiber, putting out a lot of watts is a lot of lactate. Um, and so when I don't apply that power correctly, when I mistime these sort of things, it can absolutely torpedo races, especially longer ones where it's difficult to recover from a high spike in lactate. Um, and that's just my, the physiology I was born with. And that's the physiology that I, I race with. It allows me to move fast. And sometimes moving fast means that I will soon go very, very slow. So being blessed or cursed with the ability <laughs> to burn all your matches in seconds, it seems like the mental game and your tactics become even much more important. How, do you, how would you rate your, your game as far as mentals, mental game and tactics? Uh, I like to think that I, um, I like to think that I'm a savvy racer and that I, that I tend to make good tactical decisions. But I think it's important to know that every time you imagine you've got tactics figured out, someone will come along and, and mess things up. The important thing in sprint racing is that you need to remain quick on your feet. You never know what someone might do. There could be a crash, there could be a broken pole, there could be a lot of things that throw a wrench into your plans. And one thing that I think my physiology is good for is it allows me to respond to sudden changes in races and it allows me to try and pull back after broken poles and I drop off the back a little bit. I can try and get back on there and and uh, I think the <laughs> I think it's important to always expect the unexpected when it comes to sprint racing especially when you're over in Europe. Yeah absolutely. Obviously I wasn't insinuating anything you've got a U.S. national championship title and six podiums and you've been selected by our national team numerous times to race internationally. I wasn't insinuating that you were not savvy. I just was one of the, it's an interesting thing to consider. If you've got the ability to burn all your matches in a short amount of time, you need to be very careful about when you, when you, when you do it. Cause <laughs> you're one and done, you know? <laughs> no, that's often a big part of my race prep really truly is going around the course and planning where is the go for broke moment? And then, you know, you do intervals in the days leading up to races. And I find like, okay, I can sustain an all out drive from this point. Can't go earlier and go later if I need to. But like, if you're trying to break somebody, this is exactly as far out as you can go. That's part of every race prep I do is finding that point. See, that's what I'm talking about. To me, that's part of being really savvy. You know your strengths and weaknesses, and then you apply your mental game to get the most out of it. Like, I, I think a lot of times about you go to racing, especially in a head-to-head -head race, and you think, okay, how am I going to get to the finish line before everyone else? And you need to know their strengths and weaknesses, but you obviously have to have a really good feel for yours, and then you just figure it out, you know, and that's what you're doing yeah. as an example. And you got to trust yourself, too. Yeah, trust yourself, but, you know, you're not going to make a move let's say if it's a two lap sprint race, you're probably not going to make a hard move in the first lap. Whereas let's say if Ian Tortilla was going to not to pick on him, but you know, I, I'm sure he's got plenty of speed, but he can go hard for long, long periods of time. It'd be more in his interest to make a move in that first lap. Obviously. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's Ian's, <laughs> Ian's been hitting the sprint training pretty hard this year. Mark my words, uh, finalist at Soho nationals, 2022. He'll be there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> will you i certainly uh plan to be i hope so too yeah okay what is something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out i thought for a while about this this is always a tough question to answer um 
I think maybe not a lot of people know, I really love uh, to play music. It's a good way to uh, wind down, relax for me. So love to play uh, piano and I got a couple of guitars kicking around the place. And uh, when I'm back at home, uh, once in a blue moon, I will uh, bust out the saxophone from the middle school days. But uh, really find that playing music is uh, something that I really enjoy and something that brings a, just a more relaxed vibe to every day that I get to engage with it. That's really cool. You must be quite talented to play, I don't know, what, what's it, is it called a woodwind? Is that what a saxophone is? What yeah, saxophone's a woodwind. Well, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a bamboo reed that goes in that's similar to a clarinet or an oboe, that yeah. sort of thing. But my point is you play one where you're blowing and you have to push the things and then you're playing a guitar, which is a whole different skill set and understanding. And then you're playing a piano, which is a whole different skill set and understanding. You must be quite talented. Uh, oh, that is not for me to say. I'm sure there are many people in my life, my parents, who had to endure me learning all of these instruments that would argue otherwise. Um, but yeah, I think one thing that's cool about music is this... Uh, the crossover between the disciplines that you're right, the modes of playing these instruments are largely different, but there's an underlying theory that uh, unites uh, the compositions that you're playing. That uh, if you understand how, how notes are related to each other, how they're supposed to work together on a piano, you can understand it on a guitar and it makes more sense on whatever other instrument you want to play. So I think that sort of uh, interdisciplinary uh, link between those, between all musical instruments is something that's really appealing to me. That's really cool. A lot of my generation would train and race and then for whatever reason, especially on trips, go to the hotel room and then play video games for hours and hours and hours in their underwear kind of a thing, you know? And I never Video thought... games are great, love yeah. them. But I never thought that that was very, it wasn't a good way to have, I think having some kind of balance in your life as a, as a athlete that's fully committed is healthy. Like for you to be able to play instruments or I don't know, to study or have other hobbies like that, that are fulfilling and take you away from being an athlete, I think is very healthy. Much I think it's healthy. good. Yeah. I think it's good to find uh challenges in your life and i would like to just clarify for whoever is listening you know i'm not the most tremendous player of any of these instruments in the world i like playing them because they are a challenge to me and it's let me learn something new that i that i can't do super well and so as learning a lot about uh this summer has been learning a lot about the various intricacies of finger picking bluegrass music because that's something that I was like I'm really bad at this I can't play any of these songs and so it's not every single day it's not hours and hours but most nights every week I'll find time to practice on the guitar and it's something that I've gotten better at and now I sound more like the songs that I'm trying to sound like and it's this challenge and this chance to repeatedly approach it and better myself that I think is one of the things I appreciate about music. I think that's the main thing and I appreciate what you said. I have a lot of hobbies and I think they complement my work and also my athletic endeavors very well and, and part of the reason why they do that is I enjoy either stinking at something and improving at it or <laughs> inspiring myself like I'll paint something Anyone else will look at it and say it's not very good, but I'll look at it and say, I can't believe I painted that because I know I suck. And so it for me, that's really, good. really good, you know? It's all Absolutely. relative. Yeah. So it's liberating. What's that? It's liberating to suck. It is so wonderful exactly. to find out that you're awful at something because you can go out in the world and without fear of failure, you can be better and you can experiment, you can learn. It's great, man. Yeah, and to actually, let's say, play something, but or in my case, paint something, and know in anyone else's estimation, it's not very good, probably. But for me, my expectation is so low because I know where I'm coming from. I can barely even 
draw a dog. I mean, I can't. Do you think it was a different <laughs> animal? I, I'm like, wow, I can't believe I painted that. That is really freaking good. I can't believe it. You know, someone else is like, that's not very good. But for me, it's a miracle, you know, and, uh, and I get a lot of satisfaction out of that. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Ben, do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words? Um, I would say love the work. Um, no matter what career you're aiming towards, what you have in mind for yourself, the reality is that the process of achieving any goal is a lot of labor. So you have to find a way to love what you do. You have to find a way to love that work. So I wake up every, oh, go ahead. Well, that brings up a question to me then. Would you also then say, be careful what you choose? I think that it is often difficult to sustain enthusiasm or to advocate for a lifestyle that you're actively unengaged in. And I think these things are kind of self-selecting. So, so your, your emphasis would be on making sure that you've got a good attitude and appreciation and, and you love what you work, perhaps more than picking something that you know you could love because the love might, you know, that, that attraction might wear off and that after a while it's all about your attitude anyway. I, yeah, I, I think yeah. it's, I think it's, the simplistic version is right turn to sports. You can absolutely love, I want to win a gold medal at the Olympics. But man, if you don't like 6 a.m. workouts and weight rooms and long plane rides and hotels, if you don't find a way to love the suffering that you do every day to get there, you're not going to enjoy the gold medal when you get there. And you're not going to make it there. You got to love the work because after a certain point, man, that's all there is. I agree completely. But I have to say, I'm not sure, but like I did a ski erg workout today and you know, you can suffer a lot on a ski erg. And I remember thinking how, how grateful I was to be doing it. You know, like I really enjoy suffering for some reason and at least that kind of suffering. I'm not sure I would even, I don't have a good attitude about things, but I'm not sure I would be able to have that attitude about something else that I consider to be boring and someone else would be able to have that same attitude about ski erg as an example. Even if Absolutely. They, you know, so there's certainly, I, I, I really like what you said about loving what you, what you do or love your work, but I think there's got to be at least some kind of um, acceptance that some things you're maybe more cut out for than other things, you know? No, and I guess that's what I mean when I say it's self-selecting. Yeah. I don't know how you feel about knitting. But say you hated knitting more than anything else in the world, you probably wouldn't end up working at like a sock factory because it just wouldn't be enjoyable to you. And the person that works, you know, I, as an architect, it would never end up Nordic skiing because they hate Nordic skiing. These things do self-select. I just, again, I would return to, I think it's, I think it's difficult. I think it's unfulfilling, unsustainable to live a life that is without conviction, without engagement or passion. And in, the, in that way, uh, loving the work is kind of a, it's a, it's a self-selecting thing. You're, you gravitate towards the work you like to do. Absolutely. I've got a friend, this is a spin on that, but I have a friend, longtime friend who's a dentist. And I once asked him, um, what is it about dentistry that you like so much? Cause you know, <laughs> right. And he go, he sat me down and said, you know, I never fell in love with dentistry. I fell in love with the lifestyle of a dentist. <laughs> yeah. well, I guess there are multiple aspects to this. Well, I uh, do love the lifestyle of a Nordic skier, but I think there's uh <laughs> less of a financial aspect of that than there is in dentistry. Sure. Hey, Ben, I've seen you around a lot. You know, we, we've, uh, we yeah. talk all the time. I see you around a lot of wherever we're at venues and such. And I always have enjoyed our contact. I always knew that there was, you're a very thoughtful person. I would even say for a 27 year old, you're actually wise. You know, you've got a lot of perspective on things and you've thought 
very much, obviously, and it's been very enjoyable to talk with you like this. There's a lot of depth to your opinions and your personality. Thank you, Ian. That's really kind. Uh, for what it's worth, I always greatly appreciate uh, the time we do get to spend together uh, during when our paths cross during the winter and any other point in the year. I think that the, the people that a skier gets to work with are uh, sometimes necessities and sometimes it's a gift to get to spend time with people, to get to associate with people. Uh, and I count myself lucky to get to work with you and, and your company. Uh, and it's one of the things that I really enjoy about, about being a skier. And I can say the same thing in my position. I've got a lot of duties that are necessary. And I do yep. best to enjoy them, as you pointed out. And then all of, pretty much all the contact I have with athletes, such as yourself, I absolutely love. It's near to dear to my heart. I love designing gloves with you in mind. I love supporting you and con, you know, just, just the, the context. So thank you for yeah. the compliment and uh, just know it's mutual. All right. Well, thank you very much for um, spending this time with us today with the, not only me, but there are a lot of people who will be listening to this podcast and watching this video and I'm sure they'll be inspired by it and learn a lot from it. If nothing else, they'll know who to cheer for when they see the name Ben Saxon on a, on a result sheet. Um, so Thank you very much, and I'll see you soon, I hope. All right. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat, Ian. This has been lovely. Me too.